Hello, and thank you for joining me for today's episode of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. In this series, we hear from people in the field of eating disorders who share with us their personal and professional reflections, journeys, their big ideas that never quite get represented in this way in standard academic conferences and publications. I'm Kathy Pike, clinical psychologist and professor at Columbia University, and I'm the host of Big Ideas in Eating Disorders. And today I'm delighted to be talking with Dr. Angela Guarda. Welcome, Angela. Thank you, Kathy. Great to be here. Dr. Guarda is the Stephen and Jean Robinson Professor of Eating Disorders and Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Johns Hopkins School of Medicine. And Dr. Guarda is an active clinician, educator, researcher who directs the Eating Disorders Program at Johns Hopkins Hospital. Angela, as we get started, I'm just wondering, you know, you've been at this a long time. I don't know if you can remember back, but what might you have done if you hadn't gotten into eating disorders? And when did you decide eating disorders was what you were going to do? Well, it was not a straight line. I can say that. Um, I was a biology major as an undergrad and uh, really graduated from undergrad without a clear idea of what to do next. Although I had gone to Johns Hopkins and since 60% of my class was pre-med, I kind of went along and did all the requirements, but didn't apply to med school um, and decided to take some time off. And I'd become interested in psychology, taking some electives as a, as a junior. So I uh, registered for a master's in clinical psychology, but then decided it, I wanted to do more neuroscience. So I left that and worked for a year and a half uh, at Hopkins as a research assistant with Joseph Coyle um, on excitatory amino acid neurotransmitters. Um, and that pretty much convinced me that I didn't want to do bench work. Um, uh -huh. So then I, again, kind of wasn't sure what to do and then had this great idea I was going to apply to acupuncture school because um, I was kind of interested in well, obviously in psychology and medicine so in a holistic view of of people and as a child our family doctor was a Romanian acupuncturist which is another story so um I didn't get in. I was rejected because I asked too many questions about the mechanism of action at the interview <laughs> and was told I should come back when I was more ready. Um, at which point I kind of broke down and said, okay, I guess I'll apply early decision to med school. And I went to med school at Maryland and I chose Maryland because it had a combined advanced track in psychiatry. And I was interested in, in the mind. Um, and uh, and then from there, I did residency at Johns Hopkins in psychiatry. And as a resident, I rotated through eating disorders and um, didn't really think it was the right fit at the time. But uh, I was lucky enough to get an internship for six months at the Maudsley. And one of the options I elected or asked for was eating disorders. And there 
before I was placed with Janet Treasure, which was a wonderful experience. And also had the opportunity to uh, meet Gerald Russell because he had just retired and was there part time. And to also learn about uh, family-based treatment by uh, sitting in on uh, some of the uh, training, resident training that was being done at the time by Chris Dare and Ivan Eisler. Mm -hmm. And I, I should mention that our program here at Hopkins was actually started by our ex-chair, um, Paul McHugh, who was a close friend of Gerald Russell's that had visited Gerald's program in England. Uh -huh. And um, therefore, and what happened is he um, actually got Arnold Anderson to start the program here at Hopkins. And Arnold had left the year before I arrived. So there was kind of a vacuum, a leadership vacuum in this program. And so when I finished my residency, uh, I wanted to stay here and work. And, and Paul McHugh offered me a job in the eating disorders program. And I said, sure, I'll try it. I'll try it. Sounds good. Um, and uh, uh, well, I, it's turned out to be a really good fit. I've really enjoyed it. Uh, one of my worries at the time was, gosh, um, every, all the patients might be the same. And in reality, this really is such a diverse, um, disorder and, you know, a very rewarding one, I think, because we are able to help a majority, a vast majority of patients to get better in a significant proportion to get well. And uh, that's really something that doesn't happen in all fields of psychiatry. Mm -hmm. um, so I finished, um, I finished training in 95 and really started running this program in 97. So you might have been an acupuncturist, but you became a psychiatrist uh, and got into eating disorders a bit by serendipity, but also it sounds like eating, working with individuals who had eating disorders brought together a lot of the interest that you had about the mind, the body, the psychology, the yeah, I was also interested in nutrition. Mm -hmm. um, and so, it, and I was interested in treating women. I, at the time, I had really been interested in borderline personality, uh, postpartum mood disorders, or eating disorders. Those were kind of areas of interest, really, because I, I, I wanted to work with younger women. Mm -hmm. um, so this was a, it was a good fit. Mm -hmm. uh, and the experience of spending six months at the Maudsley was extremely helpful uh, because when I came back here, I incorporated a lot of what I had seen there. Um, mm -hmm. I actually incorporated uh, family meals on the inpatient unit because I had a sense of FBT. Um, we started working with families for all patients, adults as well as adolescents. And, um, you know, both the Maudsley program then and the program here were entirely meal-based. Really, most patients, most programs are using meals. However, many are using, uh, increasingly, I think, in the U.S. and probably internationally, we are seeing more use of nasogastric or enteral feeding. And what I mean by an exclusively meal-based program is we do not use tubes under any circumstances, uh, but really are able to get um, 
nearly all patients, I mean, upwards of 98% of patients admitted to our program to gain weight with only food, but it's not just about food. For instance, some of the early programs primarily use nutritional supplements to get patients to gain weight. And one of the concerns in anorexia is what you see in patients is anxiety about eating, especially anxiety about eating high calorie density foods or adequate caloric intake. So one of the focuses of my of our work here has really been on helping patients to normalize their eating behavior. So to eat in social settings, to eat a balanced macronutrient uh, meal content, to eat a high variety of foods across three daily meals, plus one or two snacks at the most, as opposed to um, using more liquid supplements or certainly using enteral feeds, which you know, the problem with this behavioral approach is it's more staff intensive and it requires a specialty program. It's very hard to use um, a behavioral protocol with one patient, for instance, on an adolescent medicine unit. And that's because we are combining both a behavioral protocol that uses graduated steps with um, group therapy that is focused on generating recovery-oriented peer pressure to get patients to complete their meals. Mm -hmm. So for instance, when patients are admitted to our program, uh, they can't initially choose their food. And the reason for that is to help them to broaden their food choices, because oftentimes what we see in anorexia is a very restricted food repertoire, not just low calories consumed per day, but also very few types of foods. And so the way the protocol works is you can't choose your food for the first 10 or so so days, but if you're completing your meals by that time, you start to choose from from a menu. Mm -hmm. And then um, once patients are gaining weight appropriately and our average rates of weight gain are over four pounds or close to two kilos a week, um, then uh, patients are, depending on how how close they are to a minimal healthy weight, will transition to the integrated partial hospital here. And in partial hospital, a lot of the focus is more on translating normal eating to the real world. So they will start eating off the unit, eating in restaurants, going to the cafeteria with nursing staff and selecting foods, getting carry out, preparing meals in the kitchen, the therapeutic kitchen we have, and then inviting family to eat with them and to learn the method of portioning foods or the exchange system that they've been taught. And then they'll go out with their family for a leave and eat at home and then eventually taper out of the program and only be here a couple of days a week. So the the goal is to to help patients extinguish maladaptive eating behaviors and to overcome anxiety about eating a balanced range of foods because these we know are important skills to recovery. It's not just about weight gain, it's also about normalizing eating behavior and obviously about correcting cognitive distortions that sustain Mm -hmm. the behavior. But we can't really, you can't really talk your way out of anorexia. At some level, you have to eat your way out too. So you've got this comprehensive program that relies on the the collective of the group, relies on really the strength of peers who are in recovery, um, relies on a skilled nursing staff and team, 
many layers, right? You mentioned oh, the, yeah. Be- the, the team, there's, there's yeah. um, behavior, there's, um, there's therapy and more cognitive um, behavioral therapy as patients are able to engage in that effectively. So you've got a lot going on. I appreciate your comment that um, it requires, a, it, it takes time and it takes real knowledge Um, there's a real expertise around doing this work. But I wonder if we could move into this. You've quickly kind of zeroed into a a patient group that you focus on uh, at Hopkins, where you're you're really treating largely individuals who have anorexia nervosa or anorexia in the the range of anorexia nervosa, um, disturbances in the most severe cases, right? The inpatient service and partial hospitalization. Um, you've got a lot of experience with individuals who um, have really lived with this disorder for a while, have enduring, have endured this the suffering of anorexia nervosa for a long time. What language do you use? There's a lot of discussion about what language do you use? Is it enduring, severe and enduring anorexia nervosa? Is it chronic anorexia nervosa? And this, the latest terminology, the latest term that has entered our field has been this discussion about terminal anorexia nervosa. Can you talk for a minute about the language we use, and then um, I'd like to go into more specifically the the newest vocabulary that's that's entered the field and what you think about it. I think you know there's a lot of power in words and in labels, and we have to be really careful about terminology because it can uh, it can either promote recovery or kind of in some ways foment illness and, and, and despair. And I think that, you know, before going talking about this new idea of terminal anorexia, I just want to concentrate on the terminology that we had before, which was really, well, I guess back in the day, it was more, there wasn't any terminology. We talked about maybe chronic or severe, uh, and they're different because of course, severity is is judged based on acuity or how medically compromised or psychiatrically ill someone is, whereas chronicity is how long you've been sick. And obviously the combination is the most, represents the most concerning population. Um, Those who are extremely, for instance, in the case of anorexia, underweight may also have multiple eating, maladaptive eating behaviors, maybe not just restricting an exercise, but also purging or binging behaviors. Uh, And um, uh, in terms of chronicity, some patients are ill for decades, Um, but we, we don't have a good idea of who can get well. We know that um, we, we don't have good predictors of recovery, but in going back to the, to the labels, one of the one of the problems with some of the more recent labels, and I'll just focus on severe and enduring, is I actually prefer chronic, um, in the sense that chronic is the word that is used in medicine for most in illnesses that are protracted, and it doesn't imply uncurable. Um, I just 
enduring always has sounded to me like harder to recover from than chronic in some ways. Mm -hmm. um, but this latest kind of proposal that we there be a diagnosis for called terminal anorexia, I think is extremely dangerous mm -hmm. for a number of so, reasons. So let me just punctuate that with a reference to the article by Dr. Gaudiani and Alyssa Bogetz and Joel Yeager, um, which is the article that catalyzed some of this, uh, I think largely catalyzed this discussion uh, around terminal anorexia. If you could speak to, you made the comment that people can have chronic conditions that are not necessarily life-threatening, right? Have a chronic mild case of uh, yeah, eczema or asthma or something <laughs> that can be chronic, but not life-threatening. In your view, what does, what's the intent? Why was terminal anorexia put forward from your perspective? And where does it fall short in terms of helping us in our work? Well, my short answer mm -hmm. is that I think that the only purpose for this diagnosis is to justify physician-assisted suicide, which I really feel is a very is very dangerous territory for us to be in uh, as treatment providers for anorexia, as a psychiatrist, as a physician. Um, the proposed criteria that that um, doctors Gojiani and Jaeger have put forward for this diagnosis um, are that an individual has to have anorexia and has to have be uh, over age thirty. So age thirty is actually pretty young, um, and the problem is that. Although it is true that if you're 30 and you still have anorexia, you're, you're not in the early recovery group, um, the data that we have, the longitudinal data that we have on anorexia, supports that recovery can occur over the course of decades. For instance, there is a study from Mass General that followed patients over 20 years and two thirds eventually recover. But if you look at nine or 10 years, only one third is recovered. So that mm. means that that second third is recovering in the second decade. Mm -hmm. 30 minus 20 is age 10. Mm -hmm. So if you develop anorexia at age 10 and you haven't recovered at age 20, you would qualify for this diagnosis. But we know that recovery can happen after that long an interval. The other thing which I kind of alluded to is we don't have any clear predictors of recovery. We cannot tell who will and who categorically won't recover. And we don't have anything like the staging criteria that, for instance, exist for ca most cancers that have some predictive, significant predictive validity, mm -hmm. um, meaning, you know, stage four cancer, some stage four cancers have an average um, prognosis of three months. So they would be closer to what you would define as a terminal, clear, more clearly terminal condition. Whereas here, if you speak to, I think if you speak to most uh, people like my uh, physicians, like myself who work with this population, 
they would all tell you that they've been, had surprises in both directions. In other words, patients I've seen as teenagers who I thought had a mild case and remain ill 20 years later, and patients who are in their 40s, 50s, even 70s, who may have been admitted several times before, so have failed treatment, but who recover. Um, sometimes it's really a life event um, that is the tipping point or the turning point for them. I've had a patient come back recovered saying, well, my mother got cancer and I realized I had to stop. So I put into action everything I'd learned in prior treatments or getting pregnant sometimes has kind of changed someone's view and, and helped them to recover or a relationship. It makes me think, Angela, you, you use the term failed treatment, but in fact, when you really take a long-term view the treatments that in shorthand patients and family members and healthcare providers sometimes refer to as failed treatments are anything but failed treatments. They're part of this journey that gets people to the on this course of recovery. And I I, I you know, I often have spoken to patients who have been in hospitalized multiple times and they say, you know, finally, my fifth hospitalization was finally the one, you know, that worked for me, but they could never have gotten to number five without number one, two, three, and four. So it's really an important point that you make about actually access to care, stay engaging in care over time and, um, and, and what it takes to get to be on a course of recovery and recovery being this journey rather than a destination. Kathy, I think you're making a really key point there. We know that reaching a healthy weight is the best predictor of recovery in anorexia, but that a significant proportion up to 50% relapse. But those patients I believe who make it to weight restoration are, as you point out, primed in a way to recover later. They won't all recover, but they've done, they know what they need to do. Mm-hmm. And I, it, you just reminded me of this patient I saw early in my career who was a, a teenager who, who we admitted three times, weight restored each time. She just promptly lost all the weight afterwards. And the third time, after the third time, her parents brought her back and I said, I'm sorry, I don't know what else to do to help your daughter. I suggest you try a different program. Maybe a different program will help her to engage. And then I didn't hear from her for uh, like 15 years. And one day she just called me up out of the blue. I actually didn't think she'd survive because she was very, very low weight when she was sick. And she called me up and said, oh, Dr. Guarda, can I come see you? I have a surprise. And um, I said, sure, I, I'd be happy to see you. It's so great to hear from you. And I opened the, she comes, you know, we arranged to meet. She, I opened the door and standing in front of me is a 25-year-old woman who's eight months pregnant and looks perfectly healthy. And I said, how did you do it? What uh-huh. happened? I thought you would you would never recover. And she said, well, I didn't for many years, but I, at some point I started working with a therapist who actually knew nothing about eating disorders, but I connected with her. And I guess I just was at a point in my life where I decided I, I'd had enough. 
of the anorexia. And so I pulled out, she said, my exchange forms, the meal exchange forms from <laughs> Hopkins. And I started following them. I showed them to my therapist and I just did it. And I said, wow, do you think you could have done it if you hadn't been here? Do you think you would have still gotten better? And she said, no, I think I had muscle memory or whatever we want to call it. But uh -huh. I had, because I had done it before three times, I kind of knew what I needed to do and I was more ready to do it. And I think that's kind of the problem here that we don't know what a failure of treatment really is. And so that brings me to kind of the second criterion that that um, doctors Godiani and, and Jaeger have for their terminal anorexia diagnosis. And that is that the, the patient has to have failed high quality multidisciplinary treatment, mm -hmm. which is totally undefined. Meaning we, the experts, don't even fully know how to describe what that is. Mm -hmm. I mean, different programs do slightly different things. They have different, slightly different behavioral and nutritional protocols. And I, I do, you know, when you talk to patients and ask them, well, what, you know, I often ask patients, well, what have, what were other places like? What was good? And what, what do you think is better or worse here? How can we improve? Um, they they often say, yeah, I did better in one place than the other because I this this piece of the protocol worked for me, and it's a different, not necessarily the same thing for each patient. Mm -hmm. So I think we we can't easily define what that is, and a lot of it, as you pointed out earlier, depends on the expertise of the staff. It depends on the ability to form a therapeutic alliance with the patient, and that's kind of the key to to recovery, um, but it's not something we can easily operationalize or describe. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, so that, that, so I think that that's really a, a, another problem uh, with kind of defining what multidisciplinary good treatment is. And then, you know, the, the final problem with treatment is access. Mm -hmm. You know, access to treatment, to expert multidisciplinary treatment for anorexia in the U.S. or probably worldwide is extremely limited for this group of patients. Mm -hmm. We have done a pretty good job in my career of improving treatment for adolescents with anorexia. I mean, there has been a shift. Family-based treatment is much more accepted than it was uh, when I started in this field. Putting parents in charge of refeeding an adolescent is recognized as the correct approach, at least a first line approach. But we don't have a clear first line approach other than weight restoration for those who are adults with chronic illness. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't they don't have access. Um, mm -hmm. In fact, there's very little specialty care for adults. So most are being treated by either general psychiatrists, primary care physicians, or no one. Right. Um, and that so so it, you you know it, it's hard to really say that someone has failed treatment when they don't have access to it, and that becomes a problem with the diagnosis in other ways. So you've got with the Proposal by Dr. Gaudiani and Jaeger. Um, Dr. Jaeger, you've got the age criterion and having failed treatment, comprehensive treatment and issues of access or a significant definition of what that is and then access to that. Um, 
other aspects of the definition of terminal anorexia nervosa that you are concerned about? Yeah, the third and last criterion is a clear and consistent expression by the individual who has to have decision-making capacity that further treatment is futile, that they choose to stop treatment, and that, and that they accept that death is the out, natural outcome of their illness. And the big problem with this criterion is the problem of capacity in anorexia or mm -hmm. the ability to make a reasoned decision in one specific area, and that is in the area of accepting or refusing treatment. Because ambivalence about treatment is essentially a cardinal characteristic of the disorder. Mm -hmm. And at some level, all patients struggle with, with accepting treatment, especially treatment that involves weight gain or change in eating behavior. Talk therapy is fine, but mm -hmm. that is not going to usually get you well um, mm -hmm. by itself. And but they, I mean, patients do want treatment, but they kind of want it on their own terms without really changing their behavior very much. A, a lot like in addiction, you know, this is a motivated behavior where part of you just wants to keep doing what you did yesterday. Um, mm -hmm. So, and whether that's exercise or restricting or whatever. Um, so the, 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 the issue of capacity in anorexia is subtle. It's, it's very nuanced because it's otherwise patients are, are have capacity. They they are, they can reason in all other areas, mm -hmm. um, but capacity requires several elements. It requires being able to understand the risks and benefits. And I think patients, most patients with anorexia, can do that. They understand that they have hypokalemia and that the risk is an arrhythmia, um, or that you know they they need to um, the treatment involves weight gain. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. And they under they, so they can they can list the risks and benefits of the choices. They can reason through the pros and cons, which is the second criterion of capacity of of each choice. Mm -hmm. But what they struggle with is appreciating how those elements, risks and benefits, or pros and cons, apply to their situation. For mm -hmm. instance, that's why group therapy helps in mm -hmm. in inpatient settings because the Patients can say, well, you need to, I don't need to be here, but you need to be here. And, right. um, and, and, and it's like kind of being able to have confront each other about the ways in which they distort justifying their behavior. That is what is therapeutic about group therapy for this disorder. And then the fourth criterion for capacity is to be able to communicate this a reason consistent choice and the reality is in anorexia about this issue about accepting treatment most the vast majority of the time patients are of two minds mm -hmm. um, and you can even see that in the um, cases that are described in the article by mm -hmm. Dr. Gojiani and, and Jaeger in the sense that the patients at least two or three two out of the three, are clearly ambivalent I mean, about whether they want treatment and whether they want whether they want to accept physician assisted suicide frankly another facet on the in the conversation that comes to mind for me talking with former patient of mine she said you know who is now thriving said that there were 
times in her life where she would meet the criteria for terminal anorexia. And she's now, you know, a parent with kids and in a marriage and has a very full life. And so we've had a number, and I have another patient who has come to me with a similar concern of reading what's the conversation that's been now put out in social media and feeling incredibly demoralized about their chance of ever recovering. And are they just putting off what's the inevitable end because they are struggling? And so I wonder if you could speak to the that concern from the, the patient perspective and what you're hearing patients on your unit about the impact in terms of the demoralization or the risk of contagion that could be part of having this conversation. Yeah, this is another big concern, really, how patients will perceive the term Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the risk of social contagion and suicide is well documented. For instance, the media has rules about how much, what, how they can portray suicides of public figures, because we know that following the suicides of um, well-known figures, actors or, or media figures, there, ha- there is typically a spike in suicides. Um, the, other, the other thing that we know uh, is associated with increased suicides is uh, our, our films or media that, that glamorizes suicide. For instance, 13 Reasons Why was a popular series that aired in the U.S. a few years ago. Um, it was about kids um, committing suicide, and there was an, a, a spike of suicides amongst adolescents following the screening of that series. So um, the the problem with the terminology is that uh, there will that if patients start choosing to die this way with anorexia, other patients will read about it or learn about it because they may know the the other individual and may be influenced in just the way you say it may kind of. In, invoke feelings of, oh my God, I, I've heard patients say I'm a lifer. Um, you know, there's no hope for me. But as a physician, you know, my role, I think as a psychiatrist is to instill hope in recovery, or at least in improved quality of life, in meaning in a meaningful life. I mean, I think that's what psychiatrists do. They try to improve well-being, uh, general well-being, and instead kind of <laughs> giving a patient this diagnosis is it's contradictory to to my role as a physician and for who do i decide it, that who do i decide it for when i don't even know which of my patients can recover when or how mm-hmm. um so i the, the other issue with with the patient perspective i think is that for some patients who are deep in their anorexia there's an element of anorexia that involves comparison. Am I as sick as her? Um, and we see that sometimes on an inpatient unit where patients, for instance, uh, there, there's a, there's a, you know, anorexia is very closely tied to identity and there is an element of it that's valued by the individual. It's like they see it sometimes as, well, I can do this and nobody else can, or, or I want to be better at it. Even though they know it doesn't rationally make sense, 
but there, it is possible that some, for some patients, it, it may become a goal to be diagnosed with terminal anorexia. Um, and that's so, equally worrisome. So I think in terms of getting a sense of what's on your mind these days and a big idea that you've got uh, about the, our field, it's pretty clear Uh big concerns about the way in which this conversation has progressed and the the potential to move forward with a, a terminology of terminal anorexia nervosa that from your perspective is fraught for all the reasons that you shared. Is that a fair reflection back of where you where you're coming from i think there are there's no place for this term in our field in psychiatry in general i think it's a problem for all of psychiatry and you know i think this the existing safeguards are inadequate and i actually worry that the cases described by the authors demonstrate some of the failings in the safeguards there's not no consistent requirement in U.S. states where this is legal for psychiatric evaluation. The palliative care expert in one of the cases described felt too uncomfortable to weigh in on an opinion about MAID, so they had to seek another physician. The problem of kind of doctor shopping to find someone who will agree, a physician who will agree, when because two physicians are required to agree in, in, in the U.S., um, that a patient is eligible for this procedure. But there are other issues, for instance, in Oregon or Washington or, or states where this is legal, the waiting time, you have to make two requests. The requests can be as little as two days apart or two weeks apart. The physicians can be physicians who have never taken care of you before. There is no requirement that they, in fact, there is, you, they cannot speak to your family unless you give permission. So it is possible, for instance, for a patient to act on physician-assisted suicide without their family involvement based on current U.S. laws in states where this is legal. So there are many other issues that mm -hmm show how slippery the slope is and the risk of unnecessary deaths occurring. And that's especially true for this condition where we really can help most patients if they have access to good care. Mm -hmm. So I, the other side of the what I'm hearing from you, Angela, is that we need to we need to be talking about the part of the conversation that is silent here, which is, what are we doing about better access to care, safeguards, social determinants, and providing? Right. We don't have in-home services. Content. You know, occupational therapy around meals is especially mm -hmm. helpful for this population. Um, uh, there may be new treatments that mm -hmm. you know are in are currently in development or being researched like uh, neuromodulation, like TMS or, or direct current stimulation, even something like psilocybin, which, you know, is really at this point, there is not good data yet for, but there are possibly other um, interventions that will come up that will be developed in the next few years that could be helpful. Um, 
but this is not really helping us. This is actually hindering the options for treatment, I think, for this, you know, very ill group who can get much better and many of whom can recover over the long term. Angela, you have treated so many individuals who have gotten better over the long term. I want to thank you for your dedication to the field, the way you've helped us develop treatment programs and build the knowledge base that we have. And thanks for taking the time today to share your concerns about this direction, this conversation, and really help shape the conversation to move forward more constructively. Thanks. Thanks, Kathy. It was a pleasure.